On a visit to the Oklahoma History Center a few years ago, I was drawn to an exhibit titled, Elders Completing the Circle in the We Are Who We Were American Indians in Oklahoma Wing. The display states, Indian communities have always treated their elders with great respect. They are teachers and guides for the generations after them. Another panel highlighted that tribal elders often were involved in the process of selecting a young man's bride or a young woman's groom. I also found particularly intriguing a quote describing life among the Apache tribe. An Apache Indian by the name of Bob Heozus shared this. The federal government didn't respect Apaches for who we were. They took our children, and when they came back, the ones who spoke the best English literally became the spokespeople for the elders. They took away the elder system. The system was one in which the Apache elders guided their tribe by wisdom and experience and represented their people before others. A few years ago, Rule Lemons, a prominent minister among churches of Christ that many of you uh, will remember, wrote a foreword to the book titled The Worldly Church by Leonard Allen, Richard Hughes, and Michael Weed. And in this foreword, Lemons expresses some of the same concerns that I saw represented in that display concerning Native Americans. Here's what Lemon says in that foyer. The role of elders has changed. In ancient Israel and up to modern times, they were the grizzled grayheads who had learned so much from living that cannot be learned any other way and who were full of wisdom and compassion. They were role models and counselors. Authority was something they cared little about. But now they are board members and corporate managers. Now authority is so important that to challenge it is anathema. As we have uh, already mentioned, I have been preaching a short series of sermons titled A Noble Task, Being an Elder in the Lord's Church. Two weeks ago, in Lesson 1, we learned that an elder is a man of calling as we focus particularly upon 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. Last week we looked at the two qualifications list in 1 Timothy 3 as well as Titus 1 and learned that an elder is to be a man of character. That in those two lists of qualities that Paul provided for both Timothy and Titus, he paints the picture of the type of man, a man of character, a man who is blameless, above reproach, who has a good reputation not only within the congregation, but outside of the congregation in the local uh, community. And, and so he paints the portrait of the, the type of individual that we should appoint as an elder. And so this morning we conclude this series of lessons by looking uh, at the point that an elder is a man of capability. And we want to learn what elders do. 
Well, the New Testament helps us a little bit because we can go to the New Testament, beginning in the book of Acts, and we can learn at what elders did. So listen very carefully as I begin in the book of Acts and kind of work through the rest of the New Testament and pick out examples of what elders were doing amongst their congregations in the first century. Acts chapter 11 and verse 30, they received famine relief. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, along with the uh, apostles and James, the Lord's brother, debated a doctrinal question. In Acts 15 and verse 22, once a decision had been uh, reached uh, concerning that question, they chose delegates to uh, report, to send forth and report uh, to the brotherhood, if you will, uh, the results of their uh, debate. In Acts 20, uh, in verse 28, as well as 1 Peter 5 and verse 2, we learn that elders shepherded their flock. In Acts 21 and verse 18, at the conclusion of his third missionary uh, journey, Paul appeared before the elders in Jerusalem and gave, he, they gave him some very wise counsel. We learn uh, in the qualifications of elders from 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9 as well as 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, uh, verse 17, they taught. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, we see an example of elders commissioning uh, ministers as we read where the elders had laid hands upon the young minister Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, we learn that elders directed the life of their congregation. In James 5 and verse 14, we uh, see where elders prayed and cared for the sick among them. And finally, in 1 Peter 5 in verses 2 and 3, not only did they serve their congregation, but they were examples to their flock. So based upon the New Testament evidence of, of what elders did in the past, I want to suggest several implications for today. Number one, elders are to be accountable and available. They are to feed and lead. They are to guard and guide their flock. They are to mentor and mature the younger people uh, under their care. They are to pray for and prepare or equip uh, their congregation for works of service in the Lord's church. They are to teach and to train. They are uh, also to watch and to warn. And so you see this awesome responsibility that the Lord has charged elders uh, to do as they watch over and shepherd uh, their flock. Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 5. And in our first two lessons, we had uh, spent most of our time in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But the other extended text in the New Testament that uh, gives us information and shares some things with us about what it means uh, to be an elder is found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. And I want to uh, read uh, verses 1 through 4. And in this text, which I've already referred to uh, previously, 
we will also notice some ways that elders are not to do their task as well as encourage elders for the task at hand. Peter says this, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here's this charge. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must. And so elders do not do those things because they must in the sense of being forced to, but in the sense of being willing, again, answering that call, feeling that tug uh, by the Lord's Spirit uh, to shepherd amongst their flock. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain. It's a reference to being financially supported uh, or mishandling the Lord's funds. You know, I've, I've often uh, heard that, um, you know, the budget shouldn't be the elder's concern, and yet we see example in Scripture of elders receiving famine relief, uh, being responsible for distributing uh, those funds. And so there might be opportunity to mishandle or misappropriate uh, the money given. And so elders are not to do it uh, for dishonest gain. I can honestly say I've never talked to an elder who was in it for the money. I've never talked to a preacher who said that either. Right, John? You've got to be a part of that fraternity to understand uh, that. Not because of, of dishonest gain or because uh, you, you are, are dishonest, but eager to serve. And then verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So go back to verse 3 for just a moment. Again, the way not to do the task at hand as an elder. Uh, not because you must, but, but willingly. Uh, not for uh, uh, the money. Uh, not because of, of the opportunity for dishonest gain. And not lording it over them. It's a very interesting word. Uh, not to lord over. We see Jew Jesus use this word a couple of times in the gospel. It is a compound Greek word which means to master over, to rule over, even in the sense of, of subduing by force. Uh, listen to uh, some other translations. I read uh, from the NIV just a moment ago, not lording it over those entrusted to you. The CEV says, don't be bossy to those people who are in your care. Uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, the message, says, not bossily telling others what to do. Uh, the TPT translation, don't be controlling tyrants. And so as we emphasize this morning, things that elders are to do. Uh, I challenge those among us who uh, will be called to this task uh, to remember this uh, verse, uh, not to lord it over your flock, uh, to be humble, 
And we'll get to that here in, in just a moment. Uh, again, to be willing to serve in this capacity. So we might ask the question at this point in our process, when is a man ready to be an elder? And I want to suggest several uh, things uh, that uh, I, I believe are important as an individual considers this task. First of all, because of experience, right? uh, because of their age, uh, because of their life experience. We, we see this implied uh, if we go all the way back two weeks ago to lesson one in the word presbyteros, uh, which is simply traded, el, uh, translated as elder or older man. And with that age, the experience that comes. Again, back to the Lemons uh, quote. Uh, men who have learned things that can be learned no other way except by living. Number two, does he feel called? Again, 1 Peter, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, that idea of aspiring or uh, desiring the role, answering the call of God to be considered to be an elder. Last week in uh, lesson two, uh, when is a man ready to be an elder? When he is a man of character. Qualities that we studied last week, determined by God. And as we've learned this morning, is he capable? Is he willing to do the things that are necessary to fulfill this role, this great task of being a shepherd among God's people? Is he knowledgeable of the Word of God? Is he mature in, in his faith? Is he able to refute false doctrine, Titus uh, chapter 1? Does he feel uh, equipped with his knowledge of God's Word? Another important uh, quality uh, in answering this question, when is a man ready to be an elder? Is he available? Does he have time for the task? For example... Will you be willing to spend your Wednesday evenings with me and Jared from 8 to 11 nearly every single week? Do you have time for that? No response whatsoever, Jared, uh, on, on that. But that then leads to uh, another consideration. When you think about time, does this person have the support of his family? You know, we, we saw last week when we studied 1 Timothy 3 and we studied Titus 1 that an elder is to be a, a model husband, a model uh, father. And, and so is, is his family prepared uh, as well? Uh, another important uh, characteristic when you think about when is a man ready uh, to be an elder? Does he already have, if you will, a, a circle uh, of influence. Um, Tim Herbel uh, was a minister in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and Tim and I became uh, good friends. Tim is now in uh, Oklahoma City. And he is the first one who, that I heard say this. His point was, an elder is an elder before he's ever an elder. And what Tim meant by that was, uh, typically, a prospective elder already has 
a circle of influence already has a flock, if you will. And so when a person uh, answers that call, uh, his little flock is saying to the rest of the congregation, we already see him as a person of influence. And we already go to him for counsel and guidance. And we believe the congregation should uh, as, as well. And so uh, is this a man who is, who is known and does he have influence already? But then finally, and in my opinion, th this is the most important this morning. Is he compatible? The word compatible means capable of existing or living together in harmony. And there are at least five areas I see where, where an elder needs to be compatible with his church. That he is capable of existing and living together in harmony. First of all, with his other elders. Now, elders are not always going to agree on every single issue. But they must be united. And when a consensus, a decision is made and a consensus is formed, whether an elder agreed with it or not, once that room is left, they must be unified. And so this important point of being compatible, uh, being willing to be a team player with the existing elders. Number two, compatible with the staff. Maybe the two most nervous people through this whole process are Jared and I. And, and so a, a willingness to get to know us and, and, and to include us on the team and, and to understand that, that we work together and being able to get along. And again, not always agreeing on everything, but certainly being united. I think it's also important for, for the elders to be compatible with the congregation itself. You know, I've already made the point that, that typically a prospective elder uh, already has a, a circle of influence, but will, will that influence um, be, be spread amongst the in, entire congregation? And, and so can, can this, this man... This, this prospective elder, be compatible with the entire church. Number four, especially in our context, I think you need to be compatible with what's hanging on the wall there, our vision, and, and understanding what that vision means, what it means to connect with God, what it means to be unified uh, with all believers, to restoring all things. Uh, Lamar Avenue, I, I know, spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of effort, uh, times of prayer and fasting in preparing uh, that vision. And we've sought to uh, implement that vision as best we can. And, and so that vision, uh, can you be compatible with it? And then finally... Somewhat in, in relationship to the vision. Can you be compatible with the future? I mean, are, are you visionary? Can, can, you, can you look down the road and uh, foresee 
where we should be as God's people. And, and this, is, this is a concern. I, I, several, several months ago, I briefly shared uh, some information uh, that came out of uh, the Hope Network, uh, specifically IMP, which you are uh, familiar with. I don't know if you were introduced to Tim Woodruff. Uh, you worked with uh, Grady King. But just a few short months ago, uh, Tim Woodruff released a report titled a, a Demographic Study of 50 Congregations of the Churches of Christ. And the news is very alarming and sobering. What IMP did uh, over the past five years, they had assisted 50 congregations in securing a new minister. Uh, again, you went through that process. And so Lamar Avenue has data that is included in this report. Let me read uh, one of the concluding paragraphs from Woodruff. Who would have thought that the data from over 9,500 respondents in 50 congregations spread all over the United States would indicate the 60% of members are, are 50 years old or older. That close to half have been Christians for more than 40 years. That 37% have been at their churches 20 years or longer. Who would believe that members under 30 comprise only 10.5% of the population of these churches that those who have been Christians for less than five years make up only 2.8% of these congregations. Woodruff summarized this information this way. Churches of Christ are old, we are not very evangelistic, and we have ossified, petrified, become inflexible. Lamar Avenue is a microcosm of this report. We are aging, we are not reaching many, and we are often set in our ways. We need shepherds who will lead us into the future determined to grow, determined to understand culture, determined to rethink not be handcuffed to tradition, willing to wrestle anew with Scripture, to be led by the Holy Spirit in fresh and invigorating ways to ensure that 150 years from now, this church will have a 300-year celebration. To conclude uh, this morning, let's go back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. After Peter shares some things about elders to the congregation, he now, he now addresses the congregation itself. Verse 5 begins, In the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. Now there are two or three ways in, in which you might interpret or apply this particular text. In, in a close, a close uh, examination of, of this text, I have reached this conclusion. Peter's contrast is not between the older men and the younger men. Uh, I, I believe contextually, 
the elders that are mentioned in verse 5 are the same elders that we have j just discussed in verses 2 through 4. Nor is the contrast between those who are elders and just those who are younger. Those who are younger is referring genetically uh, to those who are not elders, that is the rest of the congregation. In other words, Peter is saying uh, in the same way, right, just as elders have been commissioned and called to oversee their flock. Now you as the flock submit yourselves to your elders. So what he is saying then is elders have a role to fulfill, but the entire congregation in responding to their elders also has a role to fulfill. And the rest of the congregation is to defer to the leadership of the elders. We often don't like that word submit or subject. It's really an interesting word uh, to study. It literally means just to order yourself under, to live according to some constituted order. Uh, or as David uh, Finch says, submission just means you have a sub mission. So just as elders have a mission, the congregation has a mission. Congregation, we are to accept our own role. Elders are expected to lead the flock, and the flock is expected to recognize, respect, and respond to their elders. But verse 5 continues. Peter has talked to the elders He's talked to the rest of the congregation, and now he says, all of you. Now, now he's talking to both elders and the church. Every person in the congregation, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This seems to me to be additional commentary from what Peter wrote in, in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so we have mutual submission. We have mutual humility. And we have mutual grace. Um, submission of the elders to the church. Submission of the church to the elders. Elders serving in humility. The church responding in humility. The elders extending grace to the church as the church extends grace to its elders. So... Today and the future are about leaders and followers. God's church needs faithful leaders. God's church also needs faithful followers of those faithful leaders. And then finally, we must be intentional about developing both. We, we must intentionally 
Be committed to developing leaders. I have been in congregations and been a part of churches uh, when it came time to appoint new elders. Could find none. No, no one was, was qualified. Or maybe no one was, was willing. Um, some teaching needed to, to have occurred. Some mentoring. Some, some maturing. And so we as a church must be committed, if, if we're committed to the future, to developing leaders. But, but to also be developing followers. You know, we, we've called that discipleship. And, and we spent an entire summer uh, working on a discipleship path and learning what a disciple of Jesus uh, is and, and what a disciple uh, is, is to do. A disciple worship, a disciple learns, uh, a disciple is a friend, a disciple serves. And, and so we've tried to be very intentional in that. And so as a congregation, as we continue through uh, this process, um, in, included, included in, the, in the study guide for uh, life group meetings uh, today, if your group happens to be meeting, if it's not, then listen carefully because this is what's going to be challenged in our life groups today. To not only pray about this, but to also fast about this. And, and I, I have indicated at times from this pulpit how much I enjoy eating. And I am going to continue to do that until my belt buckle gets too tight. So fasting is a challenge for me. But, but, but I, I, I want to challenge all of us over the next several weeks, again, not only to spend time in prayer, but, but periodically through the week, just, just go on a fast. I, I, can, I can remember leading uh, my youth group here on, on two different fasts uh, back in the day, back in the 80s, and, and learning, learning the significance of, of that. Do, do a quick study. Get your concordance. Run through all the texts uh, that have to do with, with fasting. It's interesting that in Matthew 6, right now I'm, I'm completely off script. This is a mini-sermon on fasting. In Matthew chapter 6, as, as Jesus is, is working through the Sermon on the Mount, he says three times, and when you do something. He says, and when you pray. Jesus assumes that his disciples are going to pray. So we pray, right? He also says, and when you give, he expects his disciples to give. And, and we give, right? But he also says, and when you fast. And so Jesus expects, even assumes, that his disciples will fast. How many of us fast? Not very often. Not very often. Oh, that was a cultural thing. Oh, that was an Old Testament kind of thing. We, we can make all kinds of ex excuses. But just, just go. Just go 24 hours. If you can't do that, go 12. Go 12. And when you become hungry, pray. When, when your stomach begins to make those, those funny noises, 
stop and reflect upon God. If, if you have, most of us always have our phone and, and probably most of us have our Bible on our phone. When, when you have those feelings of hunger come over, read the text. Read God's word. But, but commit as we continue through this process uh, to bring God into the picture. To bring God into the process. And I know he will bless us. We're going to stand and sing. Kyle's going to lead us in another song. If you're uh, subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, we encourage you to come while we stand and sing.